Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 8, A Woman's Work. We are walking through a European town in the Middle Ages. Maybe it's the day of the market or town fair. Plenty of people, lots of noise, fine produce to try, games to play, music and laughter in the background. As we go, you and I, we carry our possessions in the same way. We have pouches attached to belts around our waists. Women, men, whoever. Everyone has their little pouch for their coin and whatever else they choose to bring. Skip forward a couple of centuries. Our town has become a city. It's bigger, busier, dirtier. There are more people living in poverty. And those pouches tied at our waists are attractive to thieves. So we innovate. We create slits in our breeches and our skirts and hide the pouches under our clothing. Over time, in men's clothing, those slits are sewn up and pockets are created. The slits in women's clothing weren't sewn up. As fashions became more figure-hugging, there wasn't room for those pesky pockets. And as women started to get ideas, it was a bit risky to allow them to have a hidden space to carry something. A knife, say, or a gun. This became a concern of the politicians and the patriarchy, from the French Revolution to the Wild West. Instead, women started to carry bags and purses, often smaller and more decorative than the utilitarian pouch. And why could bags be small? Well, women wouldn't need much space to carry money because women didn't have the money, or the property, or the vote, or much of anything else except a lack of education, a disproportionate share of household and menial labour, and a never-ending chain of high-risk pregnancies. Plus ça change. The pocket situation did start to change when movements for the women's vote came along, and when women started to wear more functional clothing as they worked in factories during World War I. The change didn't stick, though. Even now, most women's clothing, even trousers, lacked pockets, and women must carry their possessions visibly, at arm's length, in a bag or purse. So why am I talking about pockets? Because the subject of this week's podcast is women in biathlon. I'll be talking about a bunch of stuff on this, some more about physiology and biology, social history of women in sport, and the psychology and pressures that apply specifically to women. Mostly the theme of this podcast is how the decisions of others, that is men, have dictated the participation, effectiveness and outcomes of women in sport, and how we all need to work together to create a fairer and more just world. But before we dive into this week's topic, Let's look back at the racing last weekend in Rupolding. There were no sprints this week in Rupolding, but there was the return of the individual races. 20 kilometers for the men, 15 kilometers for the women, with four shoots alternating between prone shooting and standing. Notably here, a missed shot does not involve a penalty loop, but rather a one minute time penalty added to your race time. So the individual rewards proper endurance skiing and patience on the range. You'll see people taking six or seven seconds to get a shot down rather than one and a half to two seconds in a sprint race where every moment counts. Do I even need to tell you about the men's individual? If you've been following this podcast, you'll know that Johannes Tingisbo is unbeatable right now, even if he makes a mistake on the range. He shot 18 out of 20 and still won. His devastating ski speed meant that he could make up time on rivals who shot better. Vettel Christensen was second with 19 out of 20. 
and there were great performances from a couple of wily veterans. Yakov Fak of Slovenia shot 20 out of 20 and came third, whilst Andres Rastoguyevs of Latvia also shot clean and finished seventh. More strong performances from the up-and-coming Tommaso Jacamel in fifth and the stalwart Benedict Doll on home snow in sixth. The women's individual was a lot more fun and less predictable. The favourites were all going well and it basically came down to who could hold their nerve on the last shoot. Everyone in biathlon gave a cheer when it turned out to be Lisa Vitozzi. You'll remember that I've talked about her before. She had real trouble with her prone shooting last year and I mean real trouble. Some of those gremlins came back last week in Pakluka. This time however she went 20 out of 20 and was pretty quick on her skis too. Taking her first win in several years to universal praise and quite a lot of crying. Julia Simon, Dorothy Vera and the Erberg sisters all performed well with just one miss. Julia got yet another podium finish in third. The surprise on the podium? French youngster Lujan Monod, who shot clear and demonstrated the same sort of speed that all the French women have been finding this year. A huge shout out also to Alina Stramus of Moldova, our favourite tiny nation at the moment, for shooting clear and finishing 12th. Friday saw the men's relay, which showed that there are many ways to get to the same result. Everyone kind of knew that Norway would win, because Norway. However, Sturraholm Ligrid, skiing the first leg, muffed his standing shoot and had to go on the penalty loop, giving the field a 45 second lead over the Norwegian team. Of course they came back, and even a woeful standing shoot from Johannes Tinger's bow at the end couldn't stop them. Germany managed a great second. They were leading after the third leg thanks to the indefatigable Benedict Doll, so the home crowd had something to cheer after a couple of disappointing days. Third went to France, who again had adventures in the shooting. A big shout out to Eric Perrault, who was their lead-off man. He shot fast and clear and was able to apply the pressure, which was a big reason why Ligrid made his mistakes. Saturday was the women's relay and it was equal parts joy and heartbreak for the French women. Three had a great day, including Lujan Monod, still on a high after her performance in the individual. The person who struggled was Sophie Chauveau. It was her first ever relay at this level and it looked like she was tired on her skis and panicking in the range. These things that are experiences faced by many biathletes, old and young. Just look at the journey that Lisa Vitozzi has been on for the past couple of years. And the French squad is strong enough that Sophie will bounce back. The race eventually went to Norway. They were consistent enough early on, and then Roisland and Tandrevold just excelled on laps three and four. There was another second place for Germany to keep the crowd happy, and a third for Italy, who shot really well all day. Sunday, we saw the two mass start races. The joy of a mass start is seeing head-to-head -head racing, how people react when their nearest competitors are skiing on their shoulder or standing right next to them at the range. In both cases, we still had a race on in the final lap. With the men, it was between Vettel Christiansen and that man Johannes Tingis Bo again. No one is going to beat Johannes on skis right now. The top four in the men's race were all Norwegian, demonstrating why their relay team is pretty much unbeatable too. But there was a welcome return for Emilian Jacqueline after some time off to regroup. He finished fifth. And a new name for you, Vitauta Strolia of Lithuania, who shot brilliantly to finish seventh. In the women's mass start, the final lap showdown featured an informed Lisa Vitozzi, a highly motivated Julia Simon, and the tenacious Anais Chevalier-Boucher. Anais had made her way to the front through some calm and composed shooting. Lisa was steady and shot 19 out of 20. 
It was Julia who provided the drama, with three misses and a lot of energy-sapping skiing to stay in contention. But it was also Julia who had the tactical awareness to conserve energy on the final lap, letting Anais and then Lisa burn themselves out before bursting free in the final few hundred metres. A mention here for the Swedish women, Lynn Persson, Hannah Erberg and Anna Magnusson all finished in the top ten. Perhaps the 20-shot format is more forgiving of their mistakes than the 10-shot sprint races. And a huge shout-out to Emma Lunder of Canada, finding some form again and finishing ninth. One reflection on the whole weekend was how compassionate people are to racers like Sophie Chaveau, who just had a terrible time in a race. In a lot of sports, the internet would have been populated by trolls calling her out. Actually, the biathlon family, coaches, competitors, teammates, broadcasters and fans seem to come together to say, it's okay, it happens, you'll learn and improve from here. It was pretty cool to see. On to our main topic for the week, and I thought it was important to define some terms at the outset. In particular, the terms sex and gender. Uh, Note that these are my definitions and may not reflect how other people describe things. Sex is biological, it's assigned at birth. Sometimes the assignment is wrong and people change their sex. You have men and women who are transitioning to the opposite sex, known as trans during that process. And then they're simply women or men, depending which journey they've taken. Gender is a social construct. It's millennia of decisions about what boys do versus what girls do. It's pink and dolls for girls versus blue and guns for boys. It's who can wear what clothes, who can do what job, who gets paid what, who stays at home to look after children or aging relatives. It's all those ingrained assumptions that aren't anything to do with biology, but are all to do with social and political decisions. People who are non-binary are those who have rejected or stepped out of the social construct of gender. They say, I'm not a he or a she, I'm a they. This matters because pronouns and many languages outside English are still heavily loaded by gender. It gets tricky. Sometimes issues of sex and gender cross over. Biological females in Iceland are given the suffix dotir on their surnames, whereas biological males are given son. If you reject gender pronouns, then where do you fit? And if you change biological sex, do you have the right to change your name? It's also tricky because different people use language in different ways. My aim here is to explore the history of women in sports, particularly the sport of biathlon. Because I'm focused on history, I'll mainly be focused on those cisgender women who were assigned female at birth. However, in my discussion of the state of sport and how it moves forward, I'm I'm including trans women because they're women, and non-binary people competing in the women's discipline. So let's dive into the history of women in sport in general. Evidence from ancient Egypt and Greece suggests that women were active participants in sports including athletics, swimming, ball games, horse riding and wrestling. There's no evidence that suggests these were competitive sports however, so participation may have been more about general health and well-being taking part in physical activity was part of life. It was the rise of Christianity that really pushed forward a much more patriarchal view of society in general and of the narrative around women's bodies. Remember, at this time, women would have been equal participants in work, mostly agricultural, in family units, and often in holding money, though perhaps not property. The Christian narrative said that women are the weaker sex and should therefore not participate in things which might be physically strenuous. Even before the Middle Ages, there was a prevailing view that men's bodies are meant to be active, that men are aggressive, physical, competitive, and that women are passive and still. 
best seen sitting politely like the Mona Lisa, or splayed like meat as a nude painting or pornography. From the male gaze, women aren't meant to move. The religious narrative was reinforced with social conventions around the acceptable roles of women, their clothing, and their behaviour, particularly amongst the elites of society. Sport was seen as a male domain, a way of preparing young men for the military, going all the way back to ancient Greece and all the way forward to places like East Germany post-World War II. As times changed, women were also encouraged to participate in exercise, though in a different set of activities. Acceptable sports for women in the 19th century included things like croquet, golf and archery. It's interesting that hitting a target at long range is a feature of all of these, so perhaps we were being prepared for biathlon even then. A lot of these narratives persisted even until recently. A certain Pierre de Coubertin, founder of the modern Olympic movement but still a product of his time, said that women's bodies couldn't cope with the shock of playing sport. He also said, and I quote, the Olympic Games are a display of masculine athleticism, and the applause of women is their reward. Marginalising women into a support role, which you could probably connect to the presence of female cheerleaders in some men's sports today. Other men, besides Coubertin, worried that sport would make women infertile, because obviously the purpose of women is breeding. Women were excluded from events that were deemed unsuitable. In 1896, Stamata Rivithi infiltrated the Olympics and ran the marathon course the day after the men to make the point that women could run long distances. Whilst some runners were recognised by the international federations, individual race meetings in athletics continued to exclude women. In 1967, Catherine Switzer caused outrage by sneaking in and running the Boston Marathon alongside the men, even though women were still not allowed to compete. She was harassed by some male athletes along the route and physically shoved off the road. That said, other male athletes welcomed her and ran with her as allies and competitors. It wasn't just the marathon. After the 1928 Olympics, women were banned from Olympic athletics races longer than 200 metres. Distances like the 800 metres were not included in the Olympics until 1960. There were other barriers to participation too. There are still golf clubs and sporting clubs that restrict membership to men only or only allow women to play in certain spaces or at certain times. This is partly why parallel women's sporting federations came into being in the late 1800s to try to create space for women to play sports. But this space was often separate from the men. If we were going to compete, we shouldn't do it where we could be seen. It's also not just a physical thing. It's about the values that a society or a culture places on things. Sport was associated with values like toughness, competitiveness, strength and aggression, all perceived as male traits. And remember, this is about gender, which is the social construct, not about biological sex. It was transgressive for women to want to do things which society said were masculine. But it was okay to do things which were seen as feminine, more graceful things like dance and gymnastics, which were perceived about as about expression and emotion and other girl stuff. It also helped that the powers that be believed that gymnastics and dance were good for a woman's fertility. We can see stuff that persists. Patriarchy is persistent. It's about someone deciding what sports are appropriate for women, whether they're physically able to compete over the same distances, what they should wear, how much they should get paid or rewarded, how much television airtime and media coverage they should get, and what types of advertising or sponsorship contract they might attract. So what about biathlon specifically? Firstly, an important thing to say here is that biathlon as a sport does a lot of things really well. 
I'll come back to those in a moment, once I've done a little historical recap. Biathlon's roots are military, so for a long time it was an exclusively male arena. As the sport codified in the mid-20th century, it was for men. The first official international biathlon for men was in 1958. The first for women wasn't until 1981. Women's biathlon only entered the Olympics in 1992. Bear in mind that women's cross-country skiing was already a featured sport at the Olympics, so it can't have been about the skis. In fact, maybe it was a gun thing. Separate women's shooting events only came to the Olympics in 1984. That said, women have been competing at the European Shooting Championships since their inauguration in 1955. So it's not a gun thing. Perhaps it was just a biathlon thing at the time. In those early years of women's biathlon in the early 1980s, women competed in racing races alongside the junior meets, so as not to disrupt the attention from the real male biathletes. This persisted until 1988. Tracks were left open for spectators to cross. Prize money was around half of what the men would earn. For all its late start, biathlon has been pioneering in some regards. Women's racing was integrated with men's in 1989. The first mixed races took place in 2004. Whilst they weren't taken particularly seriously at first, their inclusion in World Cup and World Championships meant that they've become an established part of the programme. The sport offers equal prize money. And broadcasting time is equal from integrated race meetings. In addition, there are an equal number of opportunities for women and men to win medals in major championships. In many countries at different times, it's the women who are the superstars. The International Biathlon Union, the IBU, has had a gender equality working group for a number of years and has recognised that there are still more things to do, particularly in increasing representation in senior leadership and coaching. These sorts of changes can take a long time unless a sport takes proactive steps. In many male-dominated sports, there's still an expectation that coaches will be former athletes, and there's often nepotism. American football has tried to address the lack of black coaches in the sport, especially given the dominance of black athletes in the sport. For example, by requiring that black candidates are interviewed for senior jobs. This has raised a lot of awareness, but hasn't yet led to long-term change. Black coaches tend to have shorter tenure than white. They are, quote, easier to fire, and there's a concern that there is virtue signalling from teams rather than a meaningful commitment to change. But that's a different sport and a podcast for another day. In biathlon, the IBU's Gender Equality Working Group has four main objectives. Equal representation and gender sensitivity in decision-making. Equal representation and gender equality in coaching and teaching in sports. The fight against gender violence in sport and the role of sport in preventing gender violence. And the fight against negative gender stereotypes in sports and the promotion of positive role models and the role of media in this perspective. These are strong objectives and they show that the sport has shifted from getting more equality on the tracks to broader institutional and social change using sport as a vehicle. It feels that a sport with its spiritual home in the more socially liberal and equal Scandinavian countries is going to have this more open approach and it's good to see. So what are the things that biathlon could do to build an ever greater transformation in women's participation and representation across the sport? The IBU has set up networking and mentoring schemes and we're seeing success in coaching and leadership from women. We see some great coaches coming through like Sandra Flunger, coach of the Swiss women's team. But one coach is exceptionalism, not systemic change. There's still a long way to go. 
In a 2022 article about the coaching carousel among the nations, 39 coaches were mentioned who were moving into or out of senior national coaching roles. None of them were women. Literally, 39 people moved senior level jobs last off-season, and none of them, at least in this article, were women. That's not good. What it says to ambitious female biathlon coaches is that the doors are not yet open for you. It's going to be easier for a man to move jobs between nations than for a woman to take one of those jobs. The sport will also have to identify a way forward in recognition that sex and gender are not binary. Here, the US has led the way with specific policies to support participation by people who are trans or non-binary. The athletes are given freedom of choice about which category of racing to take part in, within the younger age groups, so below the age of 17, and for the masters category, which perhaps needs a different name given that we're smashing the patriarchy today. It's not clear, though, what the approach is for adult biathletes in peak career years. Speaking of career years, it's only in recent years that having a child has not meant the end of a female biathlete's career. In fact, many female biathletes do retire when they start a family, but we are seeing more and more come back. For example, Anais Chevalier-Boucher, who said herself that she gained fresh perspective and competitive edge when she returned to the sport after having her daughter. That said, there have been high-profile cases of athletes being discriminated against by sponsors and federations because they have become pregnant. Alison Felix, the track sprinter, is probably the highest-profile example. There is often a social stigma attached to mothers who continue their sporting careers. And we need to break through this if female biathletes, and athletes in general, are going to enjoy longer careers. It would also be interesting to know if there are specific training programmes that are designed to meet women's needs, whether that's coming back from having a baby, or the changing physical and mental state of a woman through her menstrual cycle. Women often joke that the world would be very different if men had a menstrual cycle. Some of the effects can include cramp, fatigue, mood swings and headaches. And yet we expect women to continue training and competing regardless. There's some fascinating research from the US which talks about how to adapt training programmes to suit women's bodies through their cycle. You'll find a link in the transcript to this episode. It's not all negative. Some studies have suggested that there are better times during a menstrual cycle for high intensity and strength training, times when oestrogen is higher and women have higher pain tolerance and report higher energy levels. Or there are times specifically when quad muscles are strengthened. It's not all negative, but it is all very specific to the individual. Back to shorter careers again. For female athletes, as for women in many jobs, shorter, broken careers mean less pay, fewer opportunities for advertising or sponsorship, and more concern about what will follow next. Some may try to go on to become commentators, presenters or journalists. Some may move into coaching. Female athletes are well aware of this challenge. A German survey of women in aquatic, athletics and martial arts identified that 60% of female athletes thought their prospects after their sporting career were worse than those available to their male counterparts. So what are the routes out of the sport for women? How are they supported out of being athletes and into other roles within the sport? Retired biathletes are potentially our best source of future leadership and coaching talent, and we need to work harder to keep more women in the sport. It's not all about the IBU. The media has a big role to play. Who gets to talk about biathlon? Here in the UK, the commentary teams for biathlon are all male. In fact, the commentary teams for most winter sports are all male, apart from occasional appearances by female alpine skiers who are brought in to comment on women's racing, but not men's. I asked the biathlon community on Twitter about TV commentary in their countries and had some positive answers, 
French, Bulgarian and Swedish broadcasters all include female commentators, usually ex-biathletes. Now, I'm not criticising the men who broadcast biathlon, they do a good job, but I am encouraging the inclusion of more women's voices in more countries. We've seen an increase in the number of female voices in broadcasting in men's soccer in the UK, not the most progressive of sports at most times. Slowly, at first, but more so in recent years. Many of the flagship programmes on national broadcasters now feature panels of men and women, black and white, reflecting the diversity of the sport and of our society. It makes a difference. Who gets to talk about a sport? Who gets to coach it? Who gets to play it? All of these things create a sporting ecosystem which encourages greater awareness and greater participation. For more on these topics, please do check the link in the transcript or search for a thesis by Lisa Gertz, G-E-R-T-Z, called Gender Equality, Biathlon and Media, an Analysis of Media Production. It's a really interesting read. This week, we are heading to Italy and to the town of Antholz, right up to the north of Italy, snuggled against the Austrian border. It's so close to Austria, in fact, that the main language of the area is German. It's a beautiful looking area, one of the most picturesque places on the tour. It's also at altitude, at around 1600 metres. This means that there's a bit less oxygen to go around, but not enough to have a huge effect on VO2 max. You have to go to higher altitudes for that to be really affected. But fatigue is going to set in quicker for those biathletes that aren't used to it, especially if you're chasing on the tracks. This course suits people who can control and measure their skiing and win on the range. It also suits people who have spent much of their life at altitude, including Antolt's native Dorothy Vera. The schedule for this week? We start on Thursday the 19th of January at 1.30 UK time with the Women's Sprint. That's followed on Friday the 20th of January at 1.30 again with the Men's Sprint. Saturday is the double header of Pursuit Races, so the Women's Pursuit at 12 o'clock and the Men's at 2 o'clock. And then Sunday is the double header of Relays, um, 10.45 for the Women's Race and 1.30 for the Men's Race. One topic that's in discussion related to this week's theme is the variation in distance between men's and women's races. For example, the women's sprint is seven and a half kilometers and the men's is 10 kilometers. The women's pursuit is 10 kilometers, the men's pursuit is 12 and a half. Sometimes the old arguments are trotted out. Women can't ski that far. There are also new and frankly objectionable arguments. Spectators won't watch more long races or there's not enough TV time for longer races or it's not fair to give the women more TV time than the men for racing the same distance. This last one is hilarious to me. No one says the, men, the women's marathon should be shorter because they get more time on TV than the men. The FIS has recently announced that it will equalise race distances in cross-country skiing through a combination of lengthening some women's races and shortening some men's races. The biggest disruption and adaptation in training and racing will fall on the women, of course, but it is recognition that there are no physiological reasons to have shorter distances for women. One argument that may sway things the other way is the level of competition. Do races become more or less competitive if you change the distances? Do longer distances favour the skiers rather than the shooters, disrupting the balance in the sport? There's no way of knowing this until you try. But certainly the results from cross-country don't seem to have made things less competitive or dulled people's enthusiasm for the sport. So, predictions for this week in Antholz. In the women's sprint and pursuit, the Italians Lisa Vitozzi and Dorothea Vera have both come into a great patch of form, but will have that home field disadvantage to worry about. 
expect them to feature well, along with some familiar names like Julia Simon, Ingrid Tandrevold and Elvira Erberg if she's recovered from a bug she picked up last week. I get the feeling that the German women might find some form soon as well. Vanessa Voigt looked good last weekend and could be an option for the longer pursuit race. And Denise Hermanvik will be starting to build her form towards the World Cup. Amy Berserger should be back into the top 10 for Switzerland too. Do I dare even talk about the men's sprint and pursuit? There's been discussion online this week as to whether Johannes Tingisbo is the greatest of all time. I think the general consensus is that he's the greatest right now, but that he needs some more years at the top of the sport before he compares with a Bjorn Dahlen or a Foucard. That said, for 2022 to 2023, he's the boss. Every race seems to be about how many he can miss and still win. Still, let's look out for the German men who've been improving their shooting and should be peppering the top 15 or so, and maybe hope that last week's prediction about the Swedish men achieving something might come true this week instead. In the relays, it will be interesting to see if the French stick with their team lineups from last week. Both were going really well until some issues with the shooting, but both have the potential to be very competitive. It will be lovely to see the Italian women getting another podium in front of the home crowd, but the French and Norwegian women will have something to say on this. Expect the Norwegian men to win if they send out their A-team, and a battle for the places among Germany, Austria, France, how about Switzerland? One last thing. The pockets war isn't over. Whilst more and more clothing for women is being designed with pockets, a 2018 study found that the pockets in women's jeans are typically 48% shorter and 6.5% narrower than those in men's jeans. So what? Well, smaller pockets are not big enough to carry the main models of any of the three leading brands of smartphones. I can't carry my iPhone in my jeans front pocket, and I don't want to carry it in the back. Similarly, typical wallets or purses are too big to go in women's jean pockets. Why does this matter? Well, it tells you that I can't carry my belongings privately around my person. I have to carry a purse. A man can carry what he wants in his pockets within reason, but a woman has to have her belongings out in the open or at least signal how much stuff she's carrying by the size of her bag. It's a privacy thing and a fashion design thing and a little thing maybe, but it's the little things that mean a lot in life. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode along with links to all sorts of background information and sources at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter at skishootrepeat. And please do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong. This podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I expect to get fact-checked. Let me know also what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I'll be back next week to review the racing in Antholtz. Look forward to the next week of racing and have a discussion and deep dive into the next topic of the week. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.